Hey listeners, it's Andy, and I'm here to see if you've tried Audible yet. With an incredible selection of audiobooks, it is the perfect way to dive deeper into the stories upon which some of your favorite films are based. Audible members get a credit every month to redeem on any audiobook they like, plus access to a huge plus catalog of podcasts, originals, and more. Just imagine listening to the books that inspired movies like The Bourne Identity, Moneyball, or sci-fi classics like Dune. The best part? You can try Audible free for 30 days and get your first audiobook on them. It's a great way to experience storytelling while supporting this podcast. To get started, go to thenextreel.com slash audible or text thenextreel to 500-500. Listen to incredible audiobooks and support the show today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. Andy, I, I feel like talking about the trailer for Star Trek, 2009's Star Trek, has to start, it, it's actually a discussion of two trailers, because it has to start with the teaser trailer. Do you remember this? Oh, yes. Man, this was vastly more memorable to me than the actual official trailer that came out. I felt like they were both quite memorable. Um, I thought the teaser was just so memorable because... It was really kind of a teaser. I mean, it, it, in such a great sense of the word, where they really went back and created this entire thing, none of which was used in the uh, in the film itself of right. the, of the construction of the Enterprise. It's such a fantastic way to spend a little money. <laughs> oh yeah, well, and a lot of money. But you know what's so great about it is they really celebrated the the like the actual manual process of building one of these things, you know, of the welding and the glass, the welding goggles that these guys are wearing and they're up on these scaffolds and and it's it is showing just these close-ups, these increasingly sort of wide and expanding shots as we see more and more of the Enterprise until that that uh that sort of crane up. Uh, looking at the top of the saucer section and and realizing they're they're showing you the Enterprise, uh, and then and then the final tag under construction. Oh my God! I was floored, floored. It was just brilliant, and it goes to exactly this. I mean, it feels so Abrams to me. This so like what is in the mystery box? You know uh, that that's that's his. Um, sort of his mantra what's in the mystery box don't tell people what's in the mystery box leave them guessing leave them wanting more and this teaser totally celebrated that for me it was amazing yeah absolutely and i think the trailer was a very successful trailer i think it gave a lot of exciting energy to kind of this this rebirth of the franchise right it, it really does a good yeah. job i think of of giving us the origin story and i think the trailer sets that up nicely with kind of this the you know the the fantastic um, moment with uh, Kirk as he's looking at the ship under construction, very much his uh, Luke looking at the sunset shot, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think that they do that very effectively in the course of this. I really have uh, just a great time watching this trailer. It it sells the the reboot very well. Oh, I think so too, and I think the language they used, the the actual clips that they used, the uh, you know, I, your your father was a starship captain for twelve minutes. I dare you to do better. First of all, Greenwood is oh my god, he is amazing. Uh, and, but the you know some of the stuff I I was wondering, I wanted to throw by you is does it violate uh, any of these trailer rules? Like for example, James T. Kirk was a great man, but that was in another life. This is of course we now know after we've seen the movie Nero, but is that too much is that does that give away uh too much that this movie is a time travel movie because otherwise they don't they don't really go uh around the time travel horde in the trailer 
No, they leave that out, um, I think, wisely. And they let us kind of discover uh, that in the film itself. And I, I don't know. That's one of those things where I think you only really get that you know, when you're back watching it again. So yeah. I don't think it, I don't think it spoils it for me. I, I thought it was fine. I don't think so either. Uh, I was torn when I first watched it, but I, I, I don't think it does. The other pieces and that the stuff that I was really frustrated about in the last trailers that we watched, it's, it's usually when the trailer gives away a major, like significant, um, you know, central visual effects piece, right? That they give yeah. away the biggest sort of gift of the movie. This movie <laughs> It's so, so visual effects heavy. Like the entire film is it, like there, there is, it doesn't feel like there is a central visual effects piece to give away. Uh, the, the whole thing is essentially ILM's, you know, sizzle reel. So is there, is there one effect in here that you, you saw and you were like, well, that was clearly the studio saying, you know, we got to sell more tickets. It, it feels like the entire thing is, and therefore it absolves it of all guilt. Yeah, I, I I'm trying to think. I, I mean, obviously, there's just a lot of uh, ship fighting sort of stuff. You know, there's uh, we could yeah. probably throw more of that uh, in there. But I mean, we see we do that get the the planet see, being sucked in on itself. Yeah. We don't know that it's Vulcan at the time, right? We get the ice planet. We get uh, some stuff on Earth. I mean, you get a good variety of of everything. Yeah. Really, um, you get the iconic moment where he sits in the seat. Um, yeah. I I don't know. I'm a little torn. I I feel like watching this they uh they're they are showing a lot of highlights, but you're right. It is kind of like there are so many highlights in this film and none of them stand out to me as like, "Oh, that is the defining moment of this film." You know that they uh, shouldn't have given away. I don't I don't know. I guess I don't feel like they really are. Yeah, I I I feel like I I wasn't really bothered by it either. I I it was frenetic. It was huge. Uh, but, uh, but I, again, it had been so long since Trek and I was so eager after watching that teaser that by the time this trailer dropped, I was hungry for anything and everything. Uh, and this trailer gave it to me. Here, here. I couldn't believe it when the bartender told me who you are. Why are you talking to me, man? Your father was captain of a starship for 12 minutes. He saved 800 lives, including yours. I dare you to do better. Enlist in Starfleet. You will experience fear. Fear in the face of certain death. received a distress call. I've been waiting for this day my whole life. This day of reckoning. I've got no captain and no first officer to replace him. Yeah, we do. is the next reel everybody i'm pete wright and that there is andy nelson hey 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 and we spoil movies tonight on the show jj abrams takes the wheel on the big franchise reboot with 2009's star trek before we get into that you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app or follow us on twitter and facebook at 
the next reel. And if you have enjoyed this show and are interested in supporting our ongoing work investigating great film, please consider a regular donation through our Patreon page. You'll get to join our back channel conversations on Slack, listen to the members only weekend show and get better chances of being a part of our listeners choice episodes. We have one coming after this series. Just head on over to patreon.com slash the next reel. Is it weird to you, Andy, that this film makes no effort to acknowledge TNG? I think they do a fantastic job of acknowledging the original TV show. Like, I I, I feel like taking a film, a, a story that is going to be a prequel, like this is how these characters basically come to meet each other and become the crew of the Enterprise. I do think they do a great job of of giving us that sense it, very much that feels like a throwback to the 60s TV show. I, I love that sense here. I do kind of feel like, you know, there is some um, sense that I get from the people who were kind of the creative team behind it that they did want to kind of dismiss everything that basically had happened since the TV show. Not so much dismiss, but just say, you know what, they did their stuff. We're going to just kind of do something fresh. I don't know yeah. how much I hate that or... I don't know. It's it's like a comic book rebooting a, a character because it's like, well, you know, we've we've gone so far with this character. It'd be great if we could kind of go back and and you know give him a shot from the beginning again. I've never really understood that concept because it's like, well, I mean, why? It's you know, <laughs> it, you're going to have to kind of hit those same notes again, right? Like if you're going to do yeah. the Batman origin story again, oh well, you know, you're, we know how he became Batman. We're going to have to go through that whole thing all over again. Yeah, how many times do we see the pearls bouncing on the blood-streaked sidewalk? Exactly, exactly. Uh, I, you know, I just I look at these pictures of of you know as I'm scanning through Star Trek lore, and we've just come off of such a, 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 a interesting series, and we both enjoyed Nemesis, and here's you know Jonathan Frakes and Michael Dorn, Lavar Burton, and the, you know it feels very much like uh that experience is is a wash including the other tv shows that had that had that had been moving toward this experience of of um sort of bringing the universe together uh, and now we're at a period where this movie represents a great fracturing of star trek as as you know rights change hands and the film goes in a new direction and you know uh, I just find that interesting. It's it's really neither here nor there for a discussion of this film, but I find it interesting what this movie represents uh, as a milestone in in Trek lore. Well, uh, to a certain extent, though, I do think it's an important element as to how this film became the film that it is. I mean, you're right. Uh, going back to kind of how this film got off the ground, I mean, it does tie into that entire. Uh, I, I don't want to call it a battle, but certainly the 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 rights control when when Viacom separated from CBS, um, mm -hmm. all of a sudden it's like, well, now this the Star Trek brand, who's going to control it? And and uh, you know, Paramount was just like, well, you know, I, I think it was Gail Berman who was running Paramount. She told the uh, the head of CBS, give us eighteen months to get a new Star Trek film um, off the ground, otherwise we'll lose the rights. 
And so, you know, they did that. And it's it's kind of like that whole Spider-Man thing with Sony, you know, or, or, or any of the Marvel properties. You got to crank a movie out every X number of years. Otherwise, you lose the rights to those. That's why you ha- we have all those awful Fantastic Four movies, because they're just like, right, oh, we right. got to do it. Just keep them And coming. I, yeah, and, and I, I'm glad that these guys, um, you know, at least went to the effort of making a good Star Trek film, not just something to crank out just to kind of, you know, get past that deadline. Um, But I do think that it, it speaks to them trying to figure out, well, what the hell are we going to do with it? Um, And it's interesting because they did go back to what I think is uh, interesting. uh, We learned about when, when I think we're talking about Star Trek, uh, the birth of Star Trek six, that Harv Bennett wanted to do this story about their Academy time. Uh, of the time when Kirk and Spock and and McCoy all met each other back at the Academy. And here it is all these years later that that story essentially becomes what we have here, which I I think is great. You know, it it was a, it was an interesting group of people that they brought on to make it happen. And I wonder if it's the blend of uh, real Star Trek fans with casual Star Trek fans and with people who really kind of do nothing about Star Trek that kind of gave it the the energy that it had? Well, it does have a lot of energy and life to it. It it feels uh, very much like it has a it, it has such a new identity all its own. And so again, as a milestone, you really feel uh, you know, over the course of, of the two hours of this film, that by the time you, you walk out of it, you know where this path is going, and it's nowhere near the forest of Star Trek that you've been in. Yeah. Uh, it's, it, is, uh, it, it is a mere hint of it. Uh, it feels very Abrams to me, uh, you know, in terms of his identity as a director. We've got, man, do we have lens flares. I don't, I don't know that this is where it, uh, where it started with him, uh, but this is where his reputation was cemented as the lens flare guy. As this is where he became the joke. Is I feel like this is the first place, uh, unless it was in the TV shows. But I I don't think Mission Impossible Three was lens flare crazy, was it? Like listening to them talk about. I, I don't know that it was crazy, but that opening scene wasn't the uh, Mission Impossible Three the one the opening sequence where they they uh, the crew goes to their they rescue Felicity in the in the giant. Uh, refinery i and he sets up all those fake those those giant remote controlled guns that it is and they're doing like heat signatures of of her uh because she's been it's the one where they rescue her and she has that thing implanted in her brain that little bomb and it blows up that's a horrible horrible thing and that i i my memory of that is that it's lens flare crazy um but maybe of course i'm remembering that because i just watched star star trek a whole bunch <laughs> and i've inserted that but uh alias and was it was there lens flare and lost i don't remember a lot of lights in the first couple seasons of lost, yeah i so. can't i can't quite I remember know. but it certainly is prevalent here and uh, and it, and again really prevalent in super eight it went bananas in super eight yeah i think everything after this it was just yeah. like i'm gonna put lens flare except were there a lot of lens flares in star wars the force awakens like now i'm <laughs> No, I think they're everywhere. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, right. It's, the light, the lightsabers are a mess. In <laughs> they're all lens flare. Um, oh, so funny. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, lens flare. That's that's a very Abrams thing. Uh, the the storytelling, you know, it has a very Abrams feel. It is a very kinetic, energetic type of storytelling, and it's very efficient storytelling. I mean, this is 
when I watch Abrams films, I feel like this is a guy who grew up watching movies and learned how to tell stories from watching great filmmakers um, and has done nothing but improve on on the way to tell a story and to move a story forward in an incredibly efficient manner. I mean, it's just yeah. so efficient the way that that stuff comes through. And watching this film, I forgot how uh, how quick we move from, well, the beginning when we have uh, kind of the, the whole scene where Kirk is born on the Kelvin, uh, just as his father kind of, uh, you know, saves him basically and then you kind of zip through his and spock's lives up until they're basically uh you know ready for academy age and it just it goes so fast it's just it's brilliant the way he does it and hearing him talk about that it's you get the sense that you know while he's that while he feels it's heartbreaking he's he has no fear about killing his darlings you know uh the the way the the script was originally written we were supposed to get uh Spock's birth and Kirk's birth we were supposed to get Spock as a young te- uh, young child and Kirk as a young child and we were supposed to get them as teens and uh, it, both of them teens and bouncing back and forth and uh the way they trimmed that heavily uh, gives us pretty much their entire youth uh, in in terms of motivation, if not um, sort of chronology, uh, and and leads us to the the beginning of the main part of the narrative so cleanly. I mean, I am there is not a slow moment in it. I am I, I'm just even as many times as I've seen this movie, I'm just riveted uh, throughout. It is blistering. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I it, is it just me? I cannot remember like this. There's so much just kinetic uh, movement through this whole thing. I, I felt like there's a lot more of it here than a couple years later when he uh, did Star Wars The Force Awakens. That felt a lot more like an actual Star Wars film. I mean, it certainly has some J.J. moments, but... I felt like this is just like, wow, this is J.J. really taking hold of this franchise and doing what he wants with it, as opposed to, like you said, leaving out anything that any of the filmmakers before him had really brought to the franchise. Yeah, I, that's a really good question. I have not watched The Force Awakens as much as I've watched this film, and so I, I don't have as clean a memory of it. But I wonder how much of this is about um, you know the letting him have more of the reins. Uh, that Star Trek was in a place where it it had, yeah. you know, it it needed an injection of hope, and Star Wars. Um, I, I actually, I guess, after the prequels, they, they needed that too. But but really, the injection of hope in Star Wars was that Lucas wasn't doing it. Really, anybody could have done it. It would have been amazing. But it was it was a property that at that time was much beloved, and yeah. people were so excited. Star Trek. I don't know if people were really talking about. Oh my God, is another Star Trek movie? Yeah. Uh, you know. Plus, Star Trek already had kind of this this uh, split audience as far as the people who really loved Star Trek and everybody else. And, you know, it was harder for Star Trek to tap into that everybody else audience. Uh, The thing that this film does very, very well, I think, just in terms of the narrative, is is it gives us the building of the team in a way that that is both, as we've already discussed, efficient, uh, but also with great sensitivity to each of these major characters. And I like that a lot. I like the fact that we we get a sense of where they are in this universe. uh, And and they do some things with the characters that that surprise me, for example, that that Uhura is a nobody. Um, right, a nobody party 
party girl, right? She hangs out at the bar and then she goes and she works essentially in a cubicle farm (laughs) on a starship, which I think is great. Like she is promoted because this non-contributing zero on the bridge can't speak Romulan. Uh, I, I think that is a, a, a real treat and um uh, I, I love scotty being put out in the middle of of you know nowhere on the ice planet and uh, like all of these pieces are are so uh, original feeling to me like it gives us and and yet it feels like it's respectful of these as you said the 60s lore it's uh, and and abrams he showed i think what he could do with building a team really well with even Mission Impossible 3. Totally. Um, the, the Mission Impossible franchise, I felt like the first two, or it's like, I mean, I, I was never really a fan of the TV show, but it's like, it was about a team. You know, they they would do the thing, and yes, Ethan Hunt led the team, but it was a team thing. And I felt like, I mean, the first one, they kill off the whole team right away. And it's just like, it became, it became the Ethan Hunt show for the mm-hmm. first couple. And the third one, I was like, oh, we're finally getting into a much, like, this is a team that I feel is much more efficient. Um, and it, it's I can get a sense that that he really cared about not just the lead, which is obviously important, but that team and giving those people things to do. Now, we've had um, other filmmakers give the people things, uh, other parts of the team, things to do in the films, but they never felt as successful as this, which I, I think was, you know, just so interesting to watch and go, wow, I feel like. Every single one of our seven key characters with Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and the rest of the team, I feel like they all had a, a moment that was exciting. In the previous films, it's like, oh, well, this one, it was Chekhov who had a moment. Oh, and then this one, Uhura had her moment. It was like, you never, they never were successful at giving everybody something. And here, yeah. I was like, wow, these guys really knew how to do it very deftly. And and with great respect to the ship, I think too. You know, they redesigned the Enterprise. They they uh, they souped her up. Uh, the NCC seventeen oh one. I when I first saw this, and actually until very recently. And when I say very recent, I mean like today, like a few hours ago. Until a few hours ago, I had real problems with the scale of the ship and how they were using the ship, uh, mostly because of the initial approach of the and, and of how they used the shuttle bay. Right. Okay. That first pass, as the camera is following their their shuttlecraft into the bay, uh, in the sort of the butt of the the main hull of the Enterprise, makes it look to me like the shuttle bay takes up pretty much the entire base of the ship. Like it's huge. It is mm-hmm. just this massive thing, and there you can see like row after row after row after of shuttlecraft. So it really makes it look like. Pretty much the entire bottom of the ship is shuttlecraft, and then they go inside the ship and you see these multi-story, like, towering frameworks of scaffolds and beams and iron, and it is it is just this gorgeous mesh that we've never seen. And for the first time, they give us this sense of, of where are all these people, you know? And we've talked about it in the Nerd Question segment, right? Every week, you're like, how many people are on this ship? Like, we only <laughs> see 15 of them. And, and here, you see all of the people that are on the Enterprise. This Enterprise is is uh, twice the size of the Enterprise that, from the original show. If you look at the the sort of you know scale rendered how wow. it was rendered, yeah, it's a it's a big ship, and um, and so 
the feel of it is really good. But I keep I kept asking myself, where do they put all this stuff? Like, where are those big beams and the multi-story hulls? If the shuttle bay is this big in the base <laughs> of the ship, like I just could never make sense of that. Um, and and so I've been I've spent the last few hours looking at images and schematics, and I'm making more sense of it. I'm getting closer to that point. I feel better about it. Uh, but is that ever something that you've noticed after my rant? I, I've never it's I, I have a real issue with like going into a ship and like figuring out where I am and and kind of putting all that into place. So I've never really it's like there's the inside of the ship and the outside of the ship. And <laughs> it, it all pretty much works. I mean, there are there are moments during the course of this series where I'm like, OK, so they have these elevators that go straight up. But the ship has so many like diagonals. So it's like, is there ever like a diagonal elevator? Like there's there are things that I get confused with, but I never really worry too much. And so I, you know, I, I guess I it's never really bugged me the whole scale of the ship. <laughs> I find that funny. And I'm gonna go ahead and take this opportunity to say, yes, uh, the turbo lifts can go in all kinds of different directions. Oh, well, hey, that's exciting yeah. to know. Mm-hmm. I had no idea. You're you're welcome. And I also have no sense. I mean, you said this is twice as big as the 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 original Enterprise, um, but like I, I I would need to see all the different Enterprises next to each other to really get a better sense of their scale next to each other because I just don't have any sense. <laughs> and unless a ship is next to another ship, like this and the Scimitar, I'm like, oh, okay, the Scimitar is really big. I I think it's beautiful. I like the curves. There were some things that broke canon, like on the nacelles. They they're not that just uh, you know standard sort of cones. They have kind of sexy shapes and pieces that move when the ship goes to warp. That's something that that uh, made some hardcore folks upset. Uh, I think it's great. I think it looks great. Yes, I loved all of that. (laughs) (laughs) As the the non-hardcore fan, I was like, this ship is my favorite. Then, well, so I want to talk about the Narada, uh, Nero's ship. And so... uh, The Narada, and I I was getting myself confused because I was thinking it was the Scimitar, but that was on the previous... (laughs) Yeah, that was the previous one. (laughs) And this, the Narada also dwarfs the Scimitar uh, by a lot. Uh, yeah, seven miles. But I, that's not entirely fair because the Narada is not all ship. Like it's got all these prongs and tongs and yeah. forks and fingers and things that kind of. So I, I have a hard time getting a sense for how much inside the Narada is actually ship that people can occupy. But it is definitely a machine ship. It is designed for a function. It's a mining ship. I don't know what would they possibly do with a ship like that. Um, you know, it, like I, w- I want to see it at work. I was not curious just about that drilling, too. you know. Yeah, yeah. like what, I was, how does it actually function? I was thinking that it would mine like meteors or things that are you know big rock things that it would kind of catch in those big prongs in the front, and then people would come out and they would mine from that. That's kind of how I was envisioning it when I learned that it was a miner's ship. Well, I like that. I that, listen to you. That's me writing Star Trek uh, canon right here, baby. God, that's <laughs> that's really good. That's that's really good. Uh, I so my my problem with it was that um, was that first of all it it's a little bit ridiculous uh, of of a ship of a ship you know I mean it's just a little bit it's a little bit ridiculous it's not very good looking it doesn't fit kind of the way uh, I I see it's just sort of comical floating in space like that I I struggle with that a little bit um, 
but what I miss in this, and this is what I want to talk about, is a little bit outside of the scope of what we actually see in the film. But apparently there is effectively another film that got cut from this film, and it's the story about what happens immediately after the um, the Narada uh, destroys the Starfleet. Um, the, the Kelvin. The Kelvin the and, the, yeah. and the, the remaining Starfleet ships that come in to fight against it, right? Apparently, the uh, in this pro- in the battle, this particular battle, uh, the Romulan ship was knocked into Klingon space, and the Klingons come and take it, right. and they put the uh, Romulans in jail for twenty five years, and a lot uh, there was a lot of material of Nero in jail. Uh, and the jail where they put them, Andy, is Rurapente. We've been to Rurapente before. That is where Kirk and McCoy were sent in the undiscovered country. I find that kind of sweet. I do too. I think it's really interesting. I actually watched the deleted scenes. There's not as much as you would have thought, like the way that it's described. I was like, oh, it's actually really short. But it was a really interesting angle. And I guess maybe people were just getting confused with this whole thing because, I mean, it was basically Nero waiting 25 years because he knew when and where uh, Spock was going to emerge uh, somehow, I'm not exactly sure how he figured it out, but somehow he did. And so it's basically a waiting game before they make their big escape. And that's the escape that we hear that um, that Uhura intercepts and translates. And so instead of this whole prison thing, and in those deleted scenes, you hear them change things like, uh, you know, I heard you talked about this Klingon destruction. There are no Klingons in the movie as it was, as it was released. Uh, and so all that was changed to, I, I heard you, you saw this lightning storm or this this storm yeah. in space, right? I found myself thinking, and I, and I wonder how much of the deleted scenes were, you know, presented to us on the deleted scenes, and if there was actually more movie sure. uh, that was cut in here. Uh, because you're right, it was short, uh, but it was enough that I was really interested in that story, and I was even more interested in the story, like how did he get his ear bitten off? You know, that was that's a crazy, gross thing. The little, like, how did he respond to the the slug the that they oh, end right. up Centaurian putting in Pike's slug. mouth, the yeah. Centaurian slug. How did he respond to that? Because they apparently used that on him. That's where he learned about this was from the Klingons who tortured him. So there are all sorts of open questions there that I think were really interesting. And I'm surprised. I don't know if that would have made it a better or worse. Like you're, to your point that people were just getting confused, you know, as, as they said, you give too much, you give too much background. People will, you know, that that's just enough to confuse people. Um, give them enough rope to hang themselves with. But it is a really fascinating element of the story. And mm-hmm. I, it's one that I think they could have gotten in there and it could have been a great uh, like extended edition sort of thing. But I feel like they would have needed a little more meat to really make it a little more clear. Yeah. Um, because if all it was was the deleted scene that I watched, then yeah, it, they, it was, it was uh, truncated too far to really make sense. Now, this last point I want to bring up about the Narada is something that answers a question that I've had since this movie came out. And it's one of my perennial frustrations with prequels. And, uh, you know, the Discovery is having the same problem. Why is it that prequels look so damned fancy? Yeah. And they have an answer for this. Uh, Apparently, quote, the scans the Kelvin took of the Narada's 24th century technology... Uh, went with the survivors on the shuttles, and they were used by 23rd century Starfleet to reverse engineer the more advanced technology seen in the alternate reality. 
according to a post by Star Trek screenwriter Roberto Orci on Ain't It Cool News. Director J.J. Abrams also said in an interview with MTV that readings from the Narada inspired ideas and technology that would, wouldn't have advanced otherwise. That's uh, that's really cool, and it helps answer why the bridge is so stinking fancy on this new flagship Enterprise, because it was inspired by technology that they took from 24th century. They never said anything about that in the film. I guess I should have connected that. Yeah, it's kind of interesting that uh, that it does that. Um, uh, we'll get a, a little bit of that in the next one, I guess, but we'll save yeah. that for next week. I had a question about that. We're back with the Romulans. We had Romulans last movie. Now we have Romulans again. And they already look different. And it's a little disappointing that I'm like, gosh, they already, they just went for a totally different look for these Romulans. I know they're minors and all this sort of stuff. And they all are like shaved and tattooed and everything. But I would have liked something that felt like a little more of a connection to the Romulans that we just saw, even though I think people are probably trying to forget Nemesis. Well, maybe it's because... Uh, this is what the Romulans looked like then, and they're going to look like the Nemesis Romulans in a hundred years. Well, they but haven't the, evolved. This, this is, is whole, how this much is, they evolve over the course of a generation. But this is my question, right? Because uh, so this story, uh, well, uh, his, Spock. We get that little flashback of Spock as he's kind of doing the the mind meld with Kirk, uh, Spock Prime, I should say, Leonard Nimoy. And we see kind of what happened. And basically the, the sun that was around that, that Romulus orbited was gonna yeah. go supernova or something like that and destroy the planet. And I'm assuming Remus, although no one mentions it, uh, clearly they just don't like these Remans. But Spock is still around. So I, I guess now I'm really confused with the timeline because Spock is not still around when we're watching Star Trek Nemesis, right? Or is he as like an ambassador, old ambassador Spock? Yeah, uh, because Spock lives a long, long, long time. Okay, so then theoretically, so after the experience that happened in Star Trek uh, Nemesis, that's when this whole thing kind of, so apparently like there's peace with the Romulans and all this, and, and ambassador Spock, who's really old, uh, now he they find out about this whole thing with the star. So it still can happen. I guess that's why I was confused because I'm like, it, it, does he live past all the TNG people? Yeah, because remember, the, the other thing, um, you know, even on TNG, in, in the season or the series premiere of TNG, Bones was a guest star. Right. So um, we're definitely in striking distance of, um, you know, of TNG cast being on. This, they, they've all had some sort of... <laughs> fancy guest or a lot of them had guest roles on TNG and Spock as a Vulcan lives like 300 years. Yeah. So that makes more sense then. Okay. Yeah. I was a little confused yeah. at first because I'm like, I thought all this stuff kind of happened before TNG, but never mind. Another question I had about these Romulans, why don't they ever speak Romulan? And even in the last film, you know, I, all of a sudden while I was watching this one, I, I had a, a moment of disappointment when it hit me. I never really, I don't think I've ever heard the Romulan language. I think that mystery is even uh, more interesting when you look at the directors or at the deleted scenes. They were speaking Romulan. They were subtitled. Uh, Yeah, not in the film. No, but in the deleted scenes on the film. That's what I mean. Like, why did they make that choice to shoot it in Romulan? They have it shot in Romulan, at least in some part of it, and then switch it, shoot it again where they're speaking English. Yeah. Why do they do that, Andy? I can't answer that question. It's very frustrating. Okay, what do you think about the goofing with the timeline? 
this works for you, yeah? I think it's actually one of the most clever ways to do a reboot that I've ever seen. And I'm totally. I'm surprised but really grateful that nobody else has tried to do the same thing. Yeah. The fact that they go back in time and they actually make it so this is the exact same group of people that were essentially watching in the original series and the first six films. Um, by doing it where it's like it's a jump back in time and something happens, and now it's basically like a parallel timeline. I thought that was one of the most genius things that they could have done, and I was thrilled because it's also the filmmakers saying, we're not going to just go do an origin story and wipe out everything that comes afterward. We're going to allow that all to still exist. It's just in a different timeline. I agree with you. I think it is super brilliant, and I also love and deeply, deeply appreciate that the rift in the timeline is the very first thing experience we have in this movie like that is where canon breaks Uh, so the entire movie is their own experience it is only sullied in one scene and that scene is on the bridge it is a quiet moment when they're all trying to problem solve and figure out what happened and spock does his sherlock thing where and this is zachary quinto spock (laughs) who does the sherlock thing and actually calls out the fact that they are that whatever reality they were living in is now going to be different as a result of what happened at kelvin and that is really frustrating to me because for a film that actually does a really good job of not pandering to the audience that's pandering to the audience in my view and i'm i'm actually surprised you didn't call that out before i did (laughs) i i I missed it i needed to uh i need to go back and look at that scene but yeah it's i should have caught that because that is something that always irritates me with 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 uh (laughs) spock when he just knows things so he's just very prescient apparently he does (laughs) he does uh i had a little bit of a question nobody seemed to bring up the fact that this red matter was spawning black holes all through travelable space yeah right (laughs) why there there are now three new ones where there weren't uh black holes before i i don't know if anybody cares maybe this is why we never see uh the uh the um stellar cartography room again because it's much too expensive to keep redoing it every time new black holes appear i i know how that uh, i got the i have to pay a lot to get my maps updated in my car <laughs> exactly i know what that's like that's terrible although here's an interesting thought that i or an interesting thought i had about the um, you know the opening in spock's uh, lab he's studying and they do this projection in the domes in the floor which i think is really cool but um i, I just think the the images when i compare stellar cartography and the beautiful photographic work uh, and CG work overlaid, uh, sort of augmenting it that they did in that room. The domes look really crappy. (laughs) Just not the same. They're just not the same. I love the motorbike. I love that it has no spokes. That was fantastic. uh, That they would go so far as to have ILM remove the spokes for that brief segment that that that's just brilliant those are the sorts of touches that i think filmmakers can add to a movie that give it a little bit of an extra boost and i know that the budget of this far exceeded what all of the previous films really had but i love that these filmmakers really know how to you know spend money on those little things that just give it a little nudge like if we had something like that in the um the argo that uh the dune buggy that picard was driving around in the last one where it's just some little twist that made it feel like not something that that we could go down to the uh you know san diego and and watch the racing yeah. on the dunes um i i i felt like that would have been a nice little touch 
I, I totally agree with you. And and then you have things, and, and you have these like really amazing um, sort of behind the scenes where you see how J.J. Abrams adds the sort of life and jitter to the camera by actually shaking the camera. <laughs> right. uh, and, and he is, as a director, is the person who's shaking the camera himself, not having somebody else do it. Like that's that's very cool. When you have them shoot the, the space jump sequence in reverse where they're just standing on a mylar sheet to reflect the sky of above them, behind them to make it look like that's just brilliant, totally guerrilla filmmaking on a $150 million, whatever film, you know, that's, that's an amazing thing. And then you turn around and he, he says, uh, you know, the, the, in the opening sequence where they actually are chasing young Kirk and he's in the car, uh, and the, the security officer is chasing him. They originally had the stuntman was was doing that, and and you could see his face. He didn't have a face helmet. They added the CG face mask after the fact. Yeah. Why? Why did they do that? Like that seems, like <laughs> seems like a very expensive uh, thing to do when they had it shot. Was what, what was wrong? Was he so horribly disfigured? This poor stuntman. Uh, I, I heard that I it was know. actually just like he he just didn't look. Um like cool enough he didn't look like kind of a futuristic policeman and so i think it was one of those in retrospect sort of things where he's like gosh yeah. i wish i wish he looked a little more futuristic and so that's what my understanding of what why they that went face back mask, to that the face mask looks really cool though oh it's it looks super really cool. I, I i mean totally never questioned that was amazing and i never questioned that it was cg yeah it was great yeah right uh we do have a red shirt oh thank god so great could have used some more red shirts. In fact, when they do the graduation and everybody's in red, I was worried. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Um, I I think that this movie dances really delicately between moments of uh, like Galaxy Quest, kind of a, a homage and like almost a parody homage and just moments of just great use of things. And the red shirt, I think... Uh, the way that they uh, use that guy, uh, it's it's so close to me to being a, a Galaxy Quest parody moment of the red shirts. But I, I think it actually just works well because of the way that he ends. I mean, yes, it's kind of cheeky and it, it is kind of bordering on parody as he as he's so cocky and he ends up just getting killed so quickly. Um, but it builds into a kind of a, a key part of a great action sequence. So I, I felt like it may have started with a lot of that parody, but I, I feel like it ended well because they it, they had to take it seriously. Yeah, well, I think so too. And I think so much of that goes to the cast they ended up with, that everybody in here is, they're so capable and so talented and so able to be both funny and intense, uh, right, and not make it a lampoon. I think that's a that that is a testament to these guys. Even the red shirt, uh, oh yeah, I'm ready to kick some Romulan us, right? And and that he then dies in an amazingly intense action sequence is, right. is well earned. You know that was crazy. Oh yeah, really great stuff. Spock is really excited about getting Kirk off the ship, and so he puts him in the ejecto pod, and they send him down onto the planet that they were nearest, which I guess you can say is is a. a, a an ejection of convenience uh, because it <laughs> right. turns out there is a Starfleet base there. And it also turns out that Spock prime is there. It's a, it's a base that's, that's like also has a great view of the black hole birth. Yes. So there's a <laughs> lot of stuff going on that, that happens. That's, that's very, uh, I don't know. Is it suspicious? It's awfully convenient for the story purposes. Yeah. Yes. 
Anyway. But and it's just so silly. I mean, I, I, honestly, I, 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 it's it's a it's a bit that I struggle with in this film because it's like, okay, you're gonna, you're. I get it. Spock is upset with Kirk and he wants to get him off the ship because Kirk is, you know, pushing his way to get what he wants. But instead of like throwing him in the brig or anything, they they put him on an escape pod and dump him on a planet in the middle of nowhere. It's like there's no care at all. I mean, he could have landed in this ice field and frozen. He could have been eaten by the first creature that's chasing him. He could have been eaten by the second creature that's chasing him. Yes, it, it makes for a great and fun sequence, but at the same time, it's like this is like it's it's like the worst way to to uh, to handle a situation like this because it's like you're basically sending him off to get killed. It's it's terrible. Yeah, that was uh, I was more the human side of Spock who <laughs> right. did that, who made that happen. Yeah, uh, yeah, that was his Kirk moment. Yeah, right. Um, okay, you have a couple of nerd questions. Maybe I don't even have any nerd answers on this. Well, one. I guess we'll find out. My first question is, okay, so we learn in this one that the Kobayashi Maru, the test that uh, we notoriously learned that Kirk uh, passed, he's, the, I think, the only person who might have passed it, uh, way back in Wrath of Khan, um, that's, it's Spock's test. Spock is the person who actually came up with it. Has that always been the case? No, there is never a, a mention of who came up with the test in the prime non-Kelvin reality. In the Kelvin reality, this is the first time we, we actually have any indication that it, the test was programmed by Spock. Interesting. I wonder, that's, it's just one of those interesting things that's like, why did they decide to make that? I mean, I think it works great in context of the story, but I, I feel like there's always going to be this del- delicate balance that the, the writers have to do with all of the Star Trek uh, lore management um, that work for the studio that say, yep, you can do that. Nope, you can't. Yep, nope. <laughs> uh, the thing that I think is missing, the deleted scenes, you actually get the 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 how, uh, which I think is really great. And I, I regret a little bit. This is the one sequence I regret a little bit is not in the, in the film because it starts with uh, Kirk and Gala making out. And he, she says, I love you. And he says, interesting. And then says, you know, I, well, it's interesting because I wrote you this letter, but you can't open it now. You have to open it at three o'clock tomorrow. Exactly. Three o'clock, three o'clock, three o'clock. Okay, three o'clock. And then he leaves. There's a whole Uhura thing. And then at three o'clock, he's actually on the Kobayashi Maru eating his apple. And at three o'clock sharp, she opens this message and it just says, I'm sorry, as it's downloading <laughs> a virus payload from her email. So she actually uh she actually she shouldn't have opened the email. She's she never learned. <laughs> they still deal with this crap. Oh, so funny. <laughs> Which I think is brilliant. I actually I think that's fantastic. It's the virus because she happened to be. I should add she's she's working in the the lab that's overseeing the test. That's how it impacts the test. So um, that's the whole reason he was sleeping with her. And and when uh, you know when we see her at his um, you know his trial his hearing. She's sitting right behind Spock, and she's very angry. Right. She's glaring yeah. with her arms crossed. Glaring, right. It's a nice little touch. And I actually, um, I, I was torn. Like, did I like that as a deleted scene? Or, um, uh, and and would I have liked it integrated? Or do I like the mystery of it? I kind of personally like the mystery of it. I think there's something really uh, fun about the idea that he came up with this whole plan. We don't know what it is, but it's just enough to just uh, just piss Spock off. You know, I, I I agree with you, and it's much more Abrams to leave it off, to leave that mystery intact. Yeah. For me, the regret is I really like um, uh, Rachel Nichols, um, uh, and and I think she's 
I think she's fantastic, and I think she's you know the Green Girl uh, sort of homage to the original series is great and she's a little bit underused and so when i saw that deleted scene i immediately thought okay this would have been a great use to have her on the on the screen a little bit longer my issue is that i just really struggled with the green girl i i felt like the makeup yes i understood they were doing an homage to the the green girl characters that they had in the original show is like a cheap way to you know make an alien but I just never feel like it looks good. I feel like it looks cheap. And of all of the great aliens that we see, it's the one that I always roll my eyes at when I watch this. They have a whole feature. like a little three-minute feature on her and the makeup. And the makeup uh-huh. looks so much better in the makeup chair. Like, yeah. it looks so <laughs> right when she's having it put on. I don't know what happened when yeah. she got on set. But I agree with you. That was a little bit troublesome. So another nerd question what's how far can they beam because there's a moment where it's like they're beaming from at least like the distance of saturn to earth and it's like what i didn't realize that they were beaming that far that's an insane distance yeah so this is the whole uh trans warp beaming thing yeah trans warp drive beaming yeah and this was um uh only actually uh introduced in the kelvin reality yeah so we've never had any discussion of being able to beam that far until that scene where Scotty introduces it. Here. Okay, so that's that's the beginning of that's the, it. the incredibly long distance beaming. Yes. Gotcha. Yep. That's it. Okay. Well, I'll I'll give it to them, but I was like that seems like a ridiculous amount to to beam somebody, but whatever. It is, but you know that ends up becoming really important in in the next oh, movie. I know yeah. it does. Yeah. yeah. So. so last little, it's not even a nerd question. It's just, I, I think it's a, a nerd conversation to have as we are talking about the Star Trek films. We really haven't brought up the whole idea of the Star Trek inventions, which I think is uh, an interesting thing that kind of went along with Star Trek, uh, you know, for a very long time. And I don't, I don't even know if they have Star Trek inventions anymore. Um, I know I went to a few of them in college and it was actually kind of fun uh, it was basically like a Comic-Con, but it was very specifically focused on on Star Trek and stuff. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, do they still have them? Or have they? since Comic-Con has become so popular, is it like all just uh, yeah. uh, Comic-Cons now? My understanding, and I, you know, my understanding is they've pretty much either been, they've been absorbed uh, yeah. into events either inside the Comic-Cons or, or around the Comic-Cons. And so um, you'll end up with, like, um, you know, these big exhibitions, the the Star Trek exhibitions. You'll have the, the cast events that they'll do. Um but uh, but I don't I don't know uh, about you know specific Star Trek conventions that are happening anymore. And the last you know I, I I was not a frequenter of convention of the Star Trek conventions. I've also been to one uh, exactly, but I don't I don't normally go to the Comic Cons either. So I think they're all fun things to go to. They are they're super yeah. fun, but um, it just never quite lines up. What are you going to do? Yeah, well, it's interesting. I, I, I do think that the the just the rejuvenation of Comic-Con and the way that it's grown into such a huge thing, and I mean, now it's like every major city has its own Comic-Con. Yeah. I feel like that's really kind of put the kibosh on all these more unique, um, I, you know, I don't want to call them minor, but, you know, a, a very, I guess, specifically focused uh, uh, convention. So yeah, it's, it's interesting. Disappointing. It's disappointing. Yeah. It's sad, but... Um... Anyway, it's now uh, it's now down to neighborhood meetups. It's just very small <laughs> gatherings. 
in, in garages. <laughs> I'm going to go to meetup.com and set one up. You should. <laughs> Let's jump into the deep scene dive. Let's do it. All right, here we go. Kirk has figured out that the Romulans are on the attack. He heads for a standoff on the bridge with Pike and Spock to make his case. This is about, uh, what did we say, 44... Yep, 44, uh, 44 49, right? 49. That's where we start for about the next three minutes. The cast is uh, it consists of the bridge crew, Chris Pine, Zachary Quinto, Kirk and Spock, Bruce Greenwood as Pike, Carl Urban as Bones, uh, Zoe Saldana as Uhura, Simon Pegg, John Cho, Scotty and Sulu, and Anton Yelchin as Sadness. With Check no off. Simon Pegg, though. We don't have Simon Pegg yet. Oh, you're right. We don't have Simon Pegg yet. Uh, there's me just reading. I'm just the reading monkey. <laughs> Why do we like this sequence, Pete? First of all, it gives us a great sense of the the sort of uh, the birth of the triangle, right? And in this case, the main triangle here is Kirk and Spock and Pike, and they're making their case. I love how this scene is written uh, and and the the performance of these words where they're talking over each other. You can you have to watch it a number of times to figure out what they're saying, except for the punch words. Uh, and you hear like he'll be removed from the vid- bridge, you know. Uh, a little bit, Spock says, and then Kirk turns around and says, try it. I'm trying to save the ship. Like, it is it is such an intense, like, hive of just uh, intensity right in the middle of the bridge. Romulans, Cadet Kirk, I think you've had enough attention for one day. McCoy, take him back to medical. We'll have words later. I can. Sure, that same anomaly. Mr. Kirk, Mr. Kirk, Mr. Kirk is not clear to be aboard this Look, vessel. I get it. You're a great argument. I'd love to do it again with you, too. Way I can remove the cadet. Try it! This Kirk. cadet is trying to save the bridge. By recommending a full stop mid-warp during a rescue mission it's not a rescue mission listen to me it's an attack based on what facts it starts with a lot of actually sort of nice wide establishing shots and we can see kind of where people are then it moves into these quick close-ups moving back and forth between face to face and then it pulls back out again and you can see that in fact bones spock and kirk are blocked in a triangle themselves uh, again right sort of behind if you look at how they're framing and that sets up the entire relationship between those three that we see in the rest of the original series uh the original cast series and uh, of course the movies to come which i think is just perfect sensitivity to the the most important relationships uh in this show um so that's my first pitch now it's your turn i uh also think there's another important triangle that we get in this particular scene and that's with uh, kirk spock and uhura because i mean at this point we know kirk has a thing for uhura and spock happens to be dating uhura and it's a nice surprise to see that spock and uhura are an item there's not a lot of uh, stuff going on with that, but but Kirk, as you mentioned earlier in the show, he brings Uhura up from her uh, from the bowels of the ship where she's working in the cubicle farm, and because she did intercept that message and she knows the Romulan and knows about this attack, and I I think that when when he introduces her into this conversation, I think it creates this great little moment of this this triangle between the three of them as. As she steps in to, you know, become basically a full-fledged member of the crew, and um, and you've got that that fantastic introduction, and, and you know, it's like she's she's one of Kirk's uh, cards that he plays that is kind of I don't want to say it's the thing that turns Spock to his side. It's the the facts that he uses with her that turns Spock. It's not the fact that he's using Spock's girlfriend, and that's what I like about the scene is that that Spock sees the logic. And I think that's a great moment that we have here where all of a sudden it's like they're all on the same side now. 
Well, and that moment in particular, when Kirk turns to Uhura and says, you know, she she's the one, she heard it, and you get her beat where she has to really think to herself, do I want to align myself with this guy? He's a right. Yahoo. Do I want to align myself with this guy? And then she does, and then Spock has a minute where he has to take that beat. Those are the perfect, breathless beats. An attack took place on the edge of Klingon space, and at 2300 hours last night, there was an attack. 47 Klingon warbirds destroyed by Romulans, sir, and it was reported that the Romulans were in one ship, one massive ship. And you know this Klingon attack, how? Sir, I intercepted and translated the message myself. Kirk's report is accurate. We're warping into a trap, sir. The Romulans waiting for us. I promise you that. The cadet's logic is sound. And Lieutenant Uhura is unmatched in xenolinguistics. We would be wise to accept her conclusion. Scan Vulcan space, check for any transmissions in Romulan. Sir, I'm not sure I can distinguish the Romulan language from Vulcan. What about you? Do you speak Romulan, cadet? Uhura. All three dialects, sir. Uhura. Relieve the lieutenant. Yes, sir. Hannity, hail the USS Truman. All the other ships are out of warp, sir, and have arrived at Vulcan, but we, we seem to have lost all contact. Sir, I pick up no Romulan transmission. Or transmission of any kind in the area. It's because they're being attacked. Shields up. Red alert. You know, this cast in general, Uhura, the way she uses her eyes uh, is unreal. She communicates so much with her eyes. The way, same thing with uh, Quinto, you know, the way he uses his eyes, the way he looks down, uh, you know, to process uh, is just amazing. I think everybody in here, in spite of it being, you know, often, you, you know, you folks who are not science fiction um, aficionados who, who or aren't really into Trek who miss this movie, miss, uh, you know, fantastic uh, nuanced performances, even though it's a giant budget blockbuster. These these people are all delivering kind of at the top of their game, and I think it's really great. Well, and they they took what the previous cast created with the characters, and they build on it in the best ways possible. You know, Carl Urban, oh my goodness, is yeah. he just perfect as Bones, right? I mean, he just everything he says just sounds like all the best lines that, that DeForest Kelly was never given. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's so great. And Anton Yelchin as Chekhov, like he, he is the embodiment of this, this young Russian, uh, you know, kid who is on the bridge. And it's, he, he plays that so nicely. All of them really do. I, I, I love this cast. They do such a great job. And in this particular scene, I feel like the, the core people are playing off each other just in a brilliant way. And I think a lot of that, uh, aside from the brilliant acting, I think you look at the way, again, going back to that kineticism that uh, Abrams brings to the film, look at the way this scene kicks off. I mean, we have them running down the hallways, uh, Dan Mindell's camera, um, as the, I mean, the camera is like swinging itself. Like it's not like a, a beautiful steady cam shot, just kind of leading them like uh, the shining or something like that. Mm-hmm. This camera is like on a, on a, on a pendulum. And as they are moving, it's swinging back and forth. I mean, it's just, it's stunning camera work. 
It really is. And this whole thing is tied together with some of the most just voracious whip pans, right? I mean, every cut's a whip and it's, it, it is just dynamic and uh, just kind of mind blowing. And I, I watching this again, uh, you know, this morning, uh, I couldn't help but think I wish that this movie came out now with the rumble seats and the, in the big, big, big screens. <laughs> like, even though this was 2009, I still want to see it again today in the theater. It, it's, yeah. This would be quite an experience. Uh, Anton Yelchin, one of his little bits uh, that that I found really funny, and, and it's one that uh, makes this hard, his character hard for, you know, my wife to watch. She lived in Russia for many years, and she comes back, she says, Russians don't talk like that. Well, Anton Yelchin is Russian. He was raised in America, he was, but he's, he's Russian. And uh, and he actually said the same thing. He said, this is not how, <laughs> you're, you're asking <laughs> me to do things. This is not how, how Russians speak. And uh, he said it was actually the conversation um, with Walter Koenig, who said, yeah, yeah I, I know, but it's funny and yeah. you you got to you got to walk that line and and i think uh, uh, as a result yelchin has some of the best gags in the movie and and some of the greatest triumphs you know in the se- sequence uh, immediately following yo mayo you know where where he actually locks on so they're they're just this is just a, a real place to shine uh, for every one of these folks it's a it is a great a great cast uh, to hit the bridge of the Enterprise. It is it's well earned. Also, the costumes throughout this whole uh, sequence, uh, through the movie, are there. it's a nice throwback to the original show. That's another element that they did, is they kind of went back to those those prime color outfits mm-hmm. that they had. And I love the what Michael Kaplan did. I just think they're just, they're so fun to look at. Yeah. And, and, and we, nicely updated. Yeah, they really are. I always thought, I think it's a little bit, I, I thought it was a little bit weird, the sort of two-piece shirt. You know, they wear the tunic on top of the black shirt. And I always thought that was a little bit strange until uh, I realized that Kirk is deranked, and that's why he has no shirt. He's wearing just the undershirt. And all of a sudden, it made sense. It's really cool and practical. Uh, and it makes it super easy for people to change, change ranks, <laughs> as we see in the next uh, subsequent film. Right, right. I, I'm actually not sure who edited this piece, Marianne Branded and Mary Jo Markey, who've worked with Abrams in the past, they each essentially sort of took a reel. Uh, and so I don't know who was editing this particular piece, but it's it's amazing. It is uh, alpha level expert uh, editing. Going back to even just the, the kineticism, it's just it's paced really well. It's cut nicely between everybody. It's it's a it's a beautiful scene that that carries the tension that we have with Kirk as he's trying to get this message across of this this imminent attack that he knows they're they're basically going to fly right into it's it's the the editing works so perfectly and it builds nicely also because we we've got this tension all of a sudden everybody's kind of on board and the music builds and everything's kind of building as they're about to come out of warp and then you come out of warp and you're like right in it and it's like he was right all along and now you know, they have to start pulling evasive maneuvers. It's it's just really nicely done. Well, I would add to that. I mean, there is that little peak right there where you feel like you're gliding in terms of just the, the editing pace because they, it's frenetic, frenetic. You're climbing, you're climbing. It's cut, cut, cut. It's whip, whip, whip. And suddenly you get this moment where Kirk looks, looks at Spock and Spock looks at Kirk and everybody's looking at Bruce Greenwood and they all are holding on because they know in five, four, Three, they're going to drop out of warp, and and so there is this moment of just sort of silence where I do I feel like I am just floating, waiting to see what happens next. It's a, it is a, a just perfect, perfect storytelling. No, it's it's a great scene. I I have a great time with it. I think that uh, it's a nice introduction and a setup for Kirk to really start 
showing his leadership side. Yeah. And I, I think that it's a very effective scene in a very a, a film full of a lot of exceptional scenes. This one stands out. Two, two points. First of all, as you say, set up the punchline to this scene, I think actually in terms of their relationship comes later, it's another bridge scene, and it is the the uh, emotionally compromised scene. Watch these two scenes back to back and to really see kind of how the Kirk-Spock relationship uh, is, is set up and then dropped. I mean, it's just wonderful. Uh, the other is the way we get into this scene. It's such an incredibly emotionally intense scene that they, you know, this standoff with Bruce Greenwood and, and Spock. That it, it begins with such comedy. Uh, it begins really oh, on yeah. Earth, you know, when when Bones is trying to help Kirk, and so he keeps injecting him with these hyposprays, and they all, you know, they all purport to give symptoms and then fix whatever happened that the last one started. And he starts with uh, it not being able to see out of his left eye, and then. <laughs> He has a splitting headache, and then uh, he gets a sedative, and he wakes up, and his hands are giant balloons, latex hands, <laughs> and then he, the the cure for that causes numb tongue, and that is, I mean, the, it's like gag after gag after gag, and between uh, Carl Urban and Chris Pine, who are so talented. I, I can't get over how well they're able to deliver these incredibly beautifully comic moments so seriously and not take me out of the film. And the comedy doesn't take me out. And that's an issue I've had with a lot of the Star Trek films before this is they the comedy was not written as effectively as it is here. Like the, the comedy often would, you know, take me out of the film completely. And then it would have to be another great moment that would get me back into it. This film has a, has a solid balance of that comedy and it works really well. Now, Andy, I feel like I'm going to be... Um... I feel like this is where you and I potentially could come to blows. Oh, yeah. Uh, And that is with the music, Michael Giacchino's score. And I'm going to go ahead and say it. Do it. This is my favorite of all of the scores that we've seen for Star Trek so far. Okay, I'm going to back away from that. (laughs) I don't think we need to come to blows over that. It's not my favorite, but I do like the themes that he came up with, particularly the the Vulcan theme, I think, is uh, one of my favorite themes in the entire um, the body of Star Trek music. I, I think the Vulcan theme has such uh, just a, there's, there's such soul there, which I think is amazing for a race like the Vulcans that are so um, largely emotionless. I, I think that was a brilliant direction to go. So I, I love that he did that for the Vulcans and for Spock. Um, the the main theme I think is fantastic. I have a great time with it. It's not my favorite. I think some of the other ones are uh, I like a little more. But I still yeah. think he did a solid job here. The I, I like the the idea that they had. This was we talked about this back in Casino Royale. Um, it's it's great that they actually don't introduce the or they don't bring Alexander Courage's main Star Trek theme to the score until the very end of the film, when finally the team has formed. They are now heading up the Enterprise, and we get it at, at the end as it introdu- introduces the cl- the uh, closing credits. I thought that was fantastic. Um, I, I, I like that they did that. I was a little disappointed. We'll talk about this next week. That it doesn't. That the other themes don't start coming back now that we have the team together. But yeah, um, yeah. but for this film, I think that it's a, a really solid score. We do have an actual soundtrack. It, it's mm. not a very broad one, but we do have one song. 
And it's it's interesting. It's a song of note. It is the Beastie Boys sabotage, uh, and it is used in a particularly empower uh, empowering moment for young Kirk. Um, it's a very cool sequence. The song is it, it's used well. Uh, it's of note because the Beastie Boys are are not uh, generally fans of having their music used in uh, for commercial purposes like this. But they happen to have, as I understand it, a relationship with J.J. Abrams. There you go. I mean, is this a, was this a question for you? I mean, we talked about this actually in our uh, most recent uh, film board, talking about Blade Runner 2049 and the fact that they pull in Elvis and Frank Sinatra songs and how much it makes sense in context of the story. I um, I thought those worked nicely. This is one, and I understand we don't have any music from the 23rd century to pull in. <laughs> I get it. But I still get, uh, in, in context of the story, it ends up driving me nuts when I'm like, wait a minute. Okay, so so you're telling me that young Kirk, who's all of, what, 12 or 14 or something like that, he's he's tuning in. This is in the 23rd century. He's tuning in to something from the 20th century, like 300 years before he was born. He's tuning into that music to jam out to. I just don't buy it. I think that's just a, a nonsense element that they include, and they didn't need to. They could have done something without having to go that route. So it, it's one of those story elements that can frustrate me. Um, even though you're right, it is cool. It's nice hearing the Beastie Boys. Look, I, here's the thing. I didn't groan at this at all. It When he yells, when the kid yells to the song, to the scream in the song, uh, I was in it. I thought it was really cool. I I don't groan. I don't actually groan until the third film, uh, which we will talk about. That is unearned. This is, uh, if, to me, it feels earned. They don't make a big deal about it. It's it's the song that was playing. Uh, it could very well have been, you know, that his stepdad was a big fan of, quote, classical music. Um <laughs> You know, whatever. I, I feel like this they can get away with this. There are, there are places where that are worth our ire, and I don't feel like this is one of them. It's not. It, it's not really worth ire, but it is worth an eye roll from me. <laughs> okay, noted. <laughs> Rapid fire, Andy. We're going to go through a couple of other names that are in the cast uh, that were not in the deep scene dive and uh, get your thoughts on them. Leonard Nimoy, Spock Prime. Uh, I think the the smartest thing they did with this is include one of the members of the original cast so that they could make the story work the way that it did. The fact that it's it's Leonard Nimoy as Spock, I think, was perfect because it tied so nicely in with uh, the young Spock. Spock Spock's second. Thank God they didn't try to bring back William Shatner. <laughs> that would have been bridge too far. Oh, generations again. Eric Bana as Nero. Good old Eric Bana. Um, he is so unrecognizable in this. I think he, he it very much speaks to the role, the makeup, also just kind of the chameleon nature he can have sometimes. I like Nero as a character. I will say that... Nero for me is the most underwhelming element of the story. Mainly, it's because the 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 climactic battle and stuff. It just it doesn't it, it doesn't carry a lot of heft because it's Nero, and I end up feeling it ends up falling a little flat. But I, I like him as the villain. Yeah, I do too. I think he's. Uh, I I'd like to see more of this kind of stuff from him. He's you know I feel like uh, he he's also so fun. I mean, this is a guy with an amazing 
range, and uh, it's it's delightful to see him anywhere. I didn't find him as underwhelming, I think, as you did as a as an evildoer, uh, and I, and I really liked his story, and I liked the the range of rage that he has, um, you know, in this um, in this film. So I I thought it was great. Uh, Greg Grunberg is back uh, as stepdad voice. Uh, which I only bring up because I like Greg Grunberg so much, and he's in like everything uh, with JJ. So, yep. William Morgan Shepard as the Vulcan science minister. Uh, he is one of those Star Trek faces. Uh, we talked about him in. Uh, uh, he was actually the Klingon commander and Rurapente in Star Trek: The Undiscovered Country. He was also Katai in an episode uh, uh, titled "Bliss" of Star Trek Voyager, and Doctor Ira Graves in the Schizoid Man. Uh, Star Trek TNG. Um, he's, I, I think he's got a great, great, great face, and I, I'll watch him anytime. I think he's wonderful. And I love that they bring these uh, people back time after time to play yeah. different characters in yeah. this universe. It's, <laughs> it's so good. So funny. Can we talk about Ben Cross for a minute as Sarek? Yeah. Fantastic casting for Sarek. I loved it. Unreal. His bone structure is amazing. <laughs> like, he looks exactly like Sarek. Like, He's just Sarek. He's Sarek as I know it. Yeah. Amazing. It was crazy seeing him. Uh, in fact, when I first saw this, because I uh, you know, d- hadn't been doing my Star Trek research, I actually thought it was the same actor. So uh, that yeah, goes Mark, to show. Uh, Mark Leonard. Like, yeah. Uh, who is legendary as as Sarek. Uh, and, and then, you know, there's another interesting thing. James Frain uh, plays Sarek, uh, the young Sarek, in Star Trek Discovery. Also fantastic looks exactly like both mark leonard and ben cross it's amazing uh anyway okay uh tyler perry is playing tyler perry as admiral richard barnett (laughs) that was a nice little thing to see thrown in i wasn't expecting him but it was nice to see him i know me too i i just like the story where he was he was acting and he didn't like one of his takes and so he yelled cut and he was like oh wait i'm sorry i'm sorry i'm just not used to this <laughs> that was really funny was uh majel funny. barrett is back as the starfleet computer i'm so glad they threw her in as uh it's it's a nice nice crossover I am, it was good to hear her voice i, I love it and i i yeah. think this is her uh she died right after um after re- recording this so she, i don't think she ever even got to see the movie oh sad uh winona ryder uh, as amanda grayson spock's mother delightful to see i her. liked seeing her in yeah. here yep yep um although now that i've seen um uh, stranger things yeah yeah now she's just crazy i can't look at her without seeing her over the top <laughs> it has soiled everything <laughs> Chris Hemsworth as George Kirk and uh, Jennifer Morrison as Winona Kirk. This was before anybody knew who Chris Hemsworth was. Yeah. We have to keep that in perspective because, I mean, I, I'm sure people in Australia probably knew uh, he'd been in uh, the TV show Home and Away um, and just a bunch of other, you know, bit parts in other TV series and stuff. But this was really kind of a, a little moment for him before he became Thor. <laughs> it's amazing. It's It's crazy. It's it's just funny how things like this, you, like you see somebody like him in a bit part like this, and it's like, oh yeah, that's Thor. It's like you know, you forget he was nobody at the time. Exactly, he was nobody. I I think they're both of them are fantastic. Uh, Jennifer Morrison too uh, is she's just uh, she's a treat as uh, mom. She was on House. 
she was Dr. Cameron on House for a lot of years, and that's where I feel like I really got to know her. And uh, so it's it was really exciting to see her in this movie because I thought, oh, I know her, and she's in she's a doctor. <laughs> uh, Rachel Nichols, we've already talked about as Gila, but Deep Roy as Keenzer. Boy, is he in a lot of stuff, and I yeah. I generally just enjoy you know the, these little things that he does. It's just it's this is such a fun little character that keeps coming back in these uh, these next few films, and it's just it's fun to see such a minor character uh, continuously getting to be included. Oh, I agree. And his eyes. So they they Ugh. obviously ILM'd his eyes right yes, after the him. fact. Here's here's what I think, Andy. This is the this is where worlds collide yet again. My hunch is if you pull back the hoods of the Jawas, Keenzer is underneath there. I think this is what the Jawas look like. That's crazy talk. Maybe not that crazy. His eyes don't glow orange. They kind of do. No, they don't. They kind of do. Maybe you just don't turn out the lights. Maybe you don't see them in the dark enough. <laughs> huh? Maybe they're uh, like headlights. Maybe you put the hood over and it gets dark and they sense that the darkness and then the lights go on. I won't take that away from you, Pete. You go on. You run with it. How'd this do in awards season, jerk? This uh, certainly was a lot more popular than the previous run of films. Uh, 24 wins and 92 nominations, other nominations. Uh, at the Oscars, they won for Best Makeup, which was fantastic. Uh, sound Mixing, um, Anna Belmer, Andy Nelson, uh, and Peter J. Devlin were go. nominated, but they lost to The Hurt Locker. Likewise, over in Sound Editing, uh, they lost to Hurt Locker. And then the visual effects team lost to Avatar. Um, over on SAG, I thought this was great to see the SAG awards they have an outstanding performance by a stunt ensemble in a motion picture award and these guys won that which is great excellent and the saturn awards which we've been talking about throughout this series uh the sci-fi fantasy and horror film awards um it did win best makeup and then everything else it lost to avatar it lost best sci-fi film best director best writing best production design and best best special effects all to avatar uh how about the budget we we talked about this. Uh, they threw more money at this uh, at this reboot problem here. Yeah, well, because J.J. Abrams uh, did such a good job showing that he could reinvigorate a franchise when he uh, took on MI three, Paramount did give him and his team one hundred fifty million dollars to make this reboot, which is one hundred sixty eight million in today's dollars. With that budget, Paramount has finally given a film in the franchise more money than the first film got making this the most expensive Star Trek film up to this point. Like the previous films, the movie was scheduled to open during the holidays of 2008, but Paramount decided that it would have a bigger audience with a summer release, so they pushed it back, conveniently allowing enough time for them to amp up their visual effects just a little bit more. Uh, The movie did open May 8, 2009, opposite Next Day Air, and with a $4 million boost from Thursday Night Previews, easily took the number one slot at the box office, it only held it for a week, though, as Dan Brown's Angels and Demons knocked it off week two. It did stay in the top 10 for seven weeks and ended up making $257.7 million domestically and $128 million internationally for a total in today's dollars of $431.9 million. That gives the film an adjusted profit per finished minute of $2.1 million, just behind number one and number four. While not the most profitable of the franchise, it did certainly prove that perhaps all the franchise really needed was some quality storytelling. 
I think it delivered. This was uh, this was an enormously satisfying um, journey back to Star Trek. I remember very clearly how good I felt walking out of this movie. Uh, you know, since it was not that long ago, and boy, does it just hold up as a fun romp, uh, aggressively exciting, and uh, it it lives up to exactly what it promises to be. Yeah, I have a great time watching this. I do have some issues with some of the elements. I, I uh, The antagonist always uh, gets a, a little frustrating toward the end. I just feel like he's he doesn't uh, have the strength that I wanted to see in an antagonist. But, um, but on the whole, it is an incredibly, incredibly fun film to watch. And um, certainly is a Star Trek film that I will return to more than a number of the others. Then I think, Andy, it's time for us to rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel, and you'll see our list of all of the movies that we've talked about on this very show. Uh, but for our purposes, just swipe over in the show notes and tap on flickchart. It'll take you right to this movie where you can add it to your own personal flickchart catalog. Andy, where do we start? First up, Star Trek or Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Uh, I'm going to say Star Trek. Star Trek for me, too. Star Trek. Outstanding. I know. Off to a good start. Star Trek or Seven Samurai. Star Trek. I think Seven Samurai is a fantastic film, but I'm going to pick Star Trek. Star Trek or Star Trek Two: The Wrath of Khan. Oh, uh, Star Trek. Star Trek Two. Well, then let's do it. Here we go. One, one, two, two three. three paper, paper. I said paper. Oh, yeah, you won. <laughs> you can't keep going, Andy. <laughs> I was going to go until I won. <laughs> Isn't that how it works? <laughs> New rule. Uh, crying out loud. New <laughs> rule. Uh, Star Trek or Children of Men. I'm going to say Children of Men. Well, that is tricky. I think I'm going to say Star Trek. Are you? Yeah, yeah, I think I am. I think I'm serious about it, too. All right, here we go. Uh-huh. One. Two. Three. Scissors. scissors. Paper. 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 Oh. That was good. That felt good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Next up, Star Trek or Jaws? Definitely Jaws for me. Uh, yeah, I'll give you Jaws. Star Trek or Inception? Inception for me. Inception for me. Star Trek or Raiders of the Lost Ark? Raiders, Raiders of the me. Lost Ark. <laughs> Star Trek or Silver Linings Playbook? Star Trek. I'm going to say Star Trek, but boy, is that a close one. That puts Star Trek at number 18 on our chart 18 out of 320 wow much higher than i would have put it but uh you uh you you had the rock paper scissors uh mojo going on yeah i beat you solidly yes indeed no that's good so where did this end up on your personal uh personal rank it actually jumped um a little bit from 600 to 117 i'm not completely convinced it's in the right spot i feel like it actually went up too high uh, but uh, out of three three thousand eight hundred thirty nine, that puts it at uh, the top three percent. Uh, uh, that's that's pretty good. It's it's higher than it should be, but yeah, that's where hmm. it's. Well, uh, I'm. It came in at number sixteen on my personal oh, flick chart out wow. of nine hundred ninety nine movies. But that's also, I mean, that's at you know ninety eight out of a hundred. Um, so top two percent. Is that now the highest Star Trek on your chart? 
or I can't remember no. where did Star Trek Six was that above that? Star Trek Six is number twelve on my list. Star Trek is number sixteen, uh, and Star Trek Two is number nineteen and number twenty. Andy, Star Wars: The Force Awakens. Wow! Yeah. Holy cow! Yeah, I told you I'm much more of a Trek person yeah. than uh, uh, you know. You told but, me, you but can I? Me. Yeah, yeah. Well, so so that's it. Where does this do for your letterboxd uh, ranking? Letterboxd.com slash the next reel. I'm torn between four and four and a half. I, I, I feel like I'm going to give it a four and a half because it's just an awfully fun movie to watch. Four and a half and a like. I'll tell you, I'm going to tell you honestly what happened. I was a five star and a like on this movie until about an hour before we started talking. And then I thought, I'll bet Andy's going to find a lot of problems with this movie and I'm going to need to <laughs> ratchet it down. So I went in and I changed it to four and a half and a like. Uh, and now I feel like we've talked about it and I, I actually, I'm still five star and a like. So I'm going to go back to that and I'm just going to wear it loud and proud. I love this movie. I had a great time with this movie and I like a lot of the stuff that you had problems with. I like more than you. So there. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's fantastic. And I, I enjoy that you like it so much. I enjoy Excellent. that. Excellent. Let us celebrate that together. Um, now, we are, we're now in the fractured timeline heavily. We're moving through. We're almost done with our entire Star Trek series. Holy uh, cow. Where do we go from here? We are going to be jumping just a, a few years to Star Trek Into Darkness, which is, uh, I, I think that it's fair to say, the most um, divisive film of the most recent reboots of the franchise we're like astronauts on some sort of star trek into darkness (laughs) (laughs) i don't yeah i think it's probably divisive i think they uh yeah i can't wait to see if uh where we land on this movie i actually don't even know where where i end up on this movie it's been it's uh, it's sort of fallen uh, from Grace a little bit, so I can't wait to watch this again um, and and talk about it in particular next week because you know when the movie ends, Andy. Our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. Now, uh, where are you on the scale? I went for the one star. The one stars, Andy. Well, I went for the three stars. Where do you think we should start? Let's work our way up. All right, go ahead. Be a little more positive. Yeah. Uh, I have one star by a woman. uh, Gives it a one star. Says the epitome of a black hole. And just like that, two precious hours of my life are sucked into a void, never to be seen again. This was just bad all around. While part of the blame falls on the sloppy direction and descript with plot holes you could fly a starship through, the cast should also shoulder some responsibility. No one had any chemistry, any charisma. Not one actor managed to rise above this mediocre material. Even Leonard Nimoy, RIP, was just waiting for the time clock to tick down so he could go to the bank and cash his paycheck. The Muppets could have done a better job at making me care about what was happening. Take a moment to imagine Star Trek with Kermit and the gang. By golly, this could work. I need to get to Hollywood and pitch my idea. There you go. <laughs> I'd like good. to remind a woman that uh, there was pigs in space. So there you go. Oh, see, even I'd forgotten that. That was a favorite. 
Yeah. Pigs in space. <laughs> My uh, Mine's a three-star, Andy, and it comes from Critical Reader, who says, Very good for fan fiction. I cannot believe the breathless praise for this movie. The movie is high-budget fan fiction that depends almost entirely on spoofing the original or generously paying it homage. The new Spock, in quotes, is hilariously, outrageously bad. He is stiff and cardboardy with zero of the charm of Nimoy Spock. He also sounds like a boy, not a man. Chris Pine is somewhat better as, quote, Kirk, but doesn't make you forget that you're watching a cheap imitation playing at being Kirk. I don't know whether they intended the movie as a farce, but that's where it, what it is to me. It's very entertaining on that basis, but only on that basis that you not take it seriously as Star Trek. The nonsense about the so-called new timeline does absolutely nothing to give it validity as real Star Trek. The timeline trick seems to have its ma- as its main purpose getting the aging Nimoy into the movie as a far-future Spock. Much of the plot also makes no sense, except as reference to some incident or incidents in the original series. Well, that pretty much sums up, Andy, the criticism of this film by uh, everyone else. Yeah, yeah. I feel like it was more loved, though, than hated. So yeah, I think, that's, I think so, too. I think that you know, says a lot. I think so, too. But those who are critical of it, man, oosh. Yeah. Hmm. The, well, you know, I mean, the original Star Trek has its core fans that it's always going to be what it was. And any attempt to kind of reboot it, it just would always have failed. Yeah, right, right. Well, and those who are uh, on the same token believe that J.J. Abrams is is nothing but a superficial sort of, you know, mock yeah. director. And, and I just disagree with that. Uh, it's like we saw different movies, Andy. Different movies. Mm-hmm. I got to go watch Nemesis again. Thanks, Amazon. <laughs>